Welcome to the Northern Grower Podcast. My name is Erin, and I'm an educator, heirloom seed saver, and doula. Join me as I explore the world of plant lore, gardening, homesteading, and slow living from my home in beautiful southwest Saskatchewan, Canada. Here on the podcast, I share homestead stories, slow living topics, and gardening magic. So please join me today as we traverse this wonderful journey of sustainable living together. Hello and welcome back friends and listeners to the Northern Grower podcast. I hope you are all well. I know I have been experiencing the deep freeze at the end of February into March like many of our Northern Growers are also experiencing and it kind of came as a little bit of a downturn because the winter was actually quite mild and I was really in the mood for spring and getting that spring fever and of course this arctic cold blast hit and it really got me thinking um, just as I was being inside you know kind of feeling cabin feverish trying to take the time to slow down and read books and just bake and make bread and be warm that way Um, but you know I was really missing um, my herbs and my herb garden and my kitchen garden and it really got me thinking actually about how much I'm ready to be planting out my apothecary garden. And so I thought, you know what, we'll talk today about the apothecary garden. And you know, if you listen, you know, I love talking about herbs and medicinal plants and the more folklore and historical side of gardening. And, you know, a lot of that is still relevant and making comebacks today. And it's, you know, a lot of our folks here who listen are into folklore, more traditional, or even I would say like witchy aspects of gardening. And so, of course, I thought what better way to, you know, spend this cold snap than talking about the history of the apothecary garden and how we have come about to the modern apothecary garden, because the apothecary garden has changed from what it meant in the past and then it's kind of circled back around um to what it traditionally was um so i will get more into that um and it is seeing a resurgence more and more people at home especially if you are you know into herbal remedies or herbal medicine or just you know kind of looking for more home remedies um or if you're into modern witchcraft that movement there is definitely more of a trend of keeping a home apothecary and a lot of people actually are really interested in growing apothecary gardens. We have an apothecary kit on our seed website and it's a very popular item. So I thought, you know what, let's talk about apothecary gardening because that seems to be a topic of interest for many people here and it's a topic of interest of mine as well. And, you know, I love growing food and saving seeds, but there is something so rooted and grounding for me in an apothecary garden. I love walking through there, smelling the flowers and the herbs. I love learning the qualities, what they were traditionally used for, um, what we now use them for, their contemporary uses. I love turning these plants into healing salves and teas and balms. And there is something when I'm hanging these bunches of herbs to dry, that genuinely makes me feel very connected, you know, to the earth and to my ancestors in a way. 
and practicing these traditional and very old ways of nurturing and healing ourselves and others in our community. It kind of makes me feel like the wise woman of the woods, which is pretty much goals for me to just be the witchy wise woman of the woods with all the herbs. So it makes me feel a little bit like that. But anyway, where did the notion of an apothecary garden come from? Why do we call it that? Because really, you know, humans have been foraging and or selectively growing plants with medicinal properties for a long time. Um, it's a very ancient practice. And even in some of my previous episodes where I've Focus more on the historical or folklore uses of specific plants. You know, some of the plants could be trace their uses back to Roman or Egyptian, ancient Egypt. So, um, you know, growing the apothecaries, growing plants for medicinal uses is a very old practice. And of course, um, we're going to look today at the more recent idea of the term apothecary and this idea of a designated growing garden area for your medicinal plants. And that seems to be the most prevalent form of apothecary nowadays is having like a store of dried herbs and having, you know, a garden of healing or medicinal plants. That kind of is the more contemporary method and form of the word apothecary. Um, but it does kind of change throughout history, as we'll see here. And you'll probably be able to see as we go through this podcast how the apothecary word and the meaning and the use of it and the way we garden um, in our apothecaries, we've come around full circle, I think. We're coming back to full circle here. But our story starts today in Merry England. And when I was looking for definitions or the original term for apothecary, it's derived from the word apotheca. And so it did mean originally a place where spices and herbs was stored. And, you know, I kind of feel that's the way we use the term apothecary now. A lot of us will talk about our apothecaries. It's a place where we store herbs and spices. Um, but actually, if you look in the dictionary, the contemporary dif dictionary definition of an apothecary is a person. And this definition came around in the 13th century, it is someone who traditionally prepared and sold drugs. And before modern synthetic versions of drugs, of course, you would have to have traditionally crafted them with both plant and animal ingredients. So typically an apothecary person or the physical store or house they lived in would have a garden where they grew the plants they needed to serve this purpose. So the apothecary was like a job. It was a title you held. And we kind of moved from it meaning the physical place to the job. But of course, they still, many of them still would have had an area where they grew these plants um, to serve what they needed to do. And so although not medical professionals in the sense they were not practicing physicians, apothecaries were compounding and selling medicines to the public people. They were sort of like today's pharmacists, and they were seen as people who had specialist skills. And being an apothecary was, you know, initially it was a well-regarded skill set to have. And then eventually in London in 1617, so a few centuries after we kind of see that term of apothecary as a job come up, 
we see the formation of the Worshipful Society of Apothecaries. And it was basically an organization, I like to think of it as like a guild, but it was really an organization that would um, set the apothecaries apart from other types of merchants. They're trying to set themselves as this kind of, these specialists with higher knowledge, right? And a lot of the time before that, I think they kind of felt they'd been lumped in with the other merchants, you know, merchants selling spices or wares or foods. And they didn't want that. They wanted to set themselves apart. So they formed a society. And I think it's because they really wanted to emphasize that they were more knowledgeable and to try to show that they were educated people. And forming a society was a way of allowing them to bring in that notion of professionalism. And to be in that society, you had to be trained, like you had to do an apprenticeship by an apothecary and kind of get your journeyman um, certificate almost at the end. And so it was it was a way of just more regulating um, the apothecary business too. And again, trying to provide some form of education and professionalism to the job, basically. And throughout England during this time, they had to like constantly prove themselves to be knowledgeable professionals, especially against physicians. And in 1704, the Society of Apothecaries actually won a legal suit against the Royal College of Physicians to be allowed to actually dispense medication. So kind of like, you know, these are the big guys of the medical establishment at this time, and they just did not like, I'm going to say like alternate practitioners. Um, the Royal College of Physicians was also going after midwives at this time as well. Like they basically wanted to have medical authority over everybody. And so they were going after the apothecaries and the midwives. And like, that kind of sounds familiar now, right? Like, are we still playing this game in the 21st century? Um, but anyway, in the 1800s, members of the Society of Apothecaries um, were then actually granted by like the government to be able to practice medicine. And so they actually got a license that they were able to practice medicine and definitely paved the way for the modern pharmacy or chemist model that we know today. Um, I know if you, where I am based in the world, pharmacists are actually getting a little bit more um, power and authority to be able to dispense and give prescriptions without actually the person having a physician's note or like a prescription from a physician. So in a sense, right, we're kind of almost going back to that model as well, trying to give these pharmacists more, um, just more empowerment. Um, and, you know, they are trained professionals. Like they do, I think pharmacists go to school like for a long time, modern pharmacists do. They, they definitely get a lot of uh, medical knowledge too, or pharmaceutical knowledge, I should say. Um, but yeah, like the apothecaries and the kind of formation of the society throughout England and, you know, their education and just this constant kind of fighting to get their licensing and prove that they could be medical practitioners. It definitely, you know, it did kind of pave that way for the more modern models we see today. And so, however, before, you know, we kind of looked at this little brief history here where, you know, being an apothecarist was a job, like it was a thing that you did. 
and it was a business. And before people were setting up these official stores and businesses as apothecaries, and before the term apothecary as a job description was coined, people had always been in the habit of learning and studying home remedies as part of life. And traditionally, throughout England, women were the knowledge keepers of healing and would have grown and managed herbs in small kitchen gardens and foraged for them to use in home remedies. And it was just expected and important knowledge for one to know. So, you know, before we started seeing, like, in the 13th century, it becoming, like, a designated person's job um, and these kind of, you know, this gradual build up of where you have businesses and it becoming very much more regulated, I would say. Um, before that, it was commonplace to just be in the home. Like you had the home apothecary and it was the woman of the home who was typically the, the manager and organizer of the apothecary and the knowledge keeper. And it is also important to just give some context as well to understand that historically medicines and plants were used not just as a cure for sickness, but to maintain overall health. And so there was just this much more holistic approach to wellness, that the kind of modern divide of waiting until sick and then finding a treatment, it's, it's definitely a newer concept. And so traditionally people would have used herbal remedies or supplements in a more proactive, balanced approach to their health. And so women would be, you know, preparing and treating families with the remedies they gathered, not just when sick in order to heal, but also to prevent sickness. Like it was good practice to um, just have that kind of knowledge in these plants and make use of them even when you were healthy as a way to just prevent sickness and promote your overall health. And so plants in the garden were not only being compounded or made into medicines, but they were used in various ways, such as adding to food dishes for their health benefits and nutritional value. And then they were all also used for their fragrance dyes and fibers. And even some, um, you know, for women who maybe had less space or were poorer, right? This was done in the kitchen around the hearth. Um, but, you know, women who were from wealthier families, um, who were maybe had bigger homes, they eventually even got designated areas where they would be specializing in compounding and preparing their distillations and their medications and all of that stuff. So it was definitely, um, you know, for women, they were generations, they were the traditional keepers of the kitchen garden and they were the preparation and knowledge holders. And essentially they were the first apothecaries, but, you know, when kind of, the apothecary started becoming more commonplace and seen as a job, especially once the society of apothecaries was formed. We see men regulating and now owning the role of preparing and dispensing these remedies. Um, because fun fact, women could not become apothecary apprentices or journeymen, despite historically this being the role, right, of the women of the house or women in the community Traditionally, like this was their role and this was their thing, right? To be the apothecary, to be the healer and to have this knowledge. And then, you know, in the 1600s, when the society formed and they were regulating the practice more, women were not allowed to be a part of that. So they could, uh, 
like later down the line when being an apothecary um, business owner, a woman could only own the business if she was widowed into it. So her husband was an apothecary and he passed away and she inherited the business. She could still, she could still have the business. So that was the only way she was able to be like a regulated licensed professional apothecary. However, in areas where, you know, the access to your kind of big business, I want to say big business in quotes, but your business apothecary was more limited if you did not have access to get uh, into a more urban center to visit one or your community did not have one or income was more limited, um, you women or people would have still gone to their local, their local um, women, their local Gila women, as a lot of the poorer women would still sell herbs and remedies, especially to those who could not afford to visit apothecaries. And so women's knowledge of the kitchen garden was still very much valued within lots of communities. And much of that knowledge is definitely being revived today. We're seeing that revival in the kitchen garden, in the knowledge of preparing and making remedies from the kitchen garden. And the concept of the kitchen garden and home apothecary, it's on the rise thanks to, I think it thanks in a part to a lot of different things. Um, there's the modern homesteading movement, of course, the back to the land movement, um, the kind of natural living movement, the resurgence of witchcraft and traditional skills, and I think in general, more people are becoming invested in their personal health and wellness. And we are we're almost seeing that more proactive approach, right, to health as well. Lots of people are just trying to be overall healthier. And I think that is helping bring that resurgence back. There is definitely an interest in people growing, even if they're not really seeing the medicinal purposes, but they're growing herbs to just use at home, um, right, which still has health benefits. And, you know, I think also what people get from that, if they are growing their gardens, their kitchen gardens, they just get an incredible sense of value and connection to plants. And, you know, you just kind of feel like you understand nature so much more when you're learning about these, the uses of these plants and how to use them and prepare them appropriately for your health. And for me personally, I do find it very empowering and, you know, again, I kind of feel connected to my ancestral roots. Um, I've got old English roots. And when I'm hanging those bundles of herbs to dry in my kitchen, I kind of feel a bit more just empowered and connected to them in a way. And for many modern-day home apothecaries, the popular methods, I would say, the popular thing to do is, and a good starting point, is to just dry herbs for culinary uses. And then if you're wanting to start branching out into more kind of remedies, preparing simple beeswax-based bombs, or drying a lot of herbs to use in tea blends are pretty, like, they're not that bad. They're pretty simple to start off with, and they're a really good starting point. And there are many other uses out there, but like I said, these are really good places to start. They're very simple. They're pretty accessible, even if you're growing, like, herbs and containers on apartment balconies. Like, you can still definitely have an apothecary garden, even if you're living in an urban apartment, Right. You can definitely grow lots of herbs indoors in a kitchen or on a balcony. 
And to give you a few basic herbs that are wonderful kitchen additions, but you can use them for other remedies, are sage, rosemary, and mint. Um, those are some of my favorites to grow. Um, I'm not super, I haven't done this myself, so I'm not super like brushed up on this, but if it's another starting point for you to go and research further would be like, uh, lots of people really tout rosemary uh, rinses for your hair. Uh, I haven't done that myself, but that is a use for it. Um, I just really enjoy rosemary for culinary, culinary purposes. There's mint to add into your food, mint teas you can make. Um, and then I also love sage as a culinary um, addition to my kitchen. Some other common plants that are also useful for like an apothecary garden or witchy garden include yarrow, um, calendula, chamomile, lavender is great too, comfrey and nettle. Uh, those are just, any of those plants would be fantastic. Historically, they, um, in the past, more poisonous plants would have also been grown, such as belladonna or hembane. Um, and they would likely have been used for medicinal purposes. Belladonna was a hallucinogenic and was used as a pain reliever. Henbane was more used as a sedative or analgesic. Um, of course, do not use poisonous plants medicinally or ingest them. This was in the past. We do have safer alternatives now. And I'm just putting in my disclaimer that a lot of us are very fascinated, I think, in our witch gardens about having like some of these more kind of witchier um, plants, but definitely talk to a professional and do your research before growing any poisonous plants in your garden, please. And apothecary gardens would also house some perennials, such as berry plants, which are edible and nutritious, but they do have other uses, such as dyes. You could use them for dyes. And in folklore, planting and harvesting by moon cycles was also common practice, as well as uh, using a water, like as well as if using a watering can to leave it out overnight to let the moon's energy charge it. Um, so that is common practice for apothecary gardener practitioners who are very into, um, like the more you know, practicing and reviving the old folklore myths and practices and habits. Um, so moon gardening. I myself have not um, practiced anything related to it, but I have heard about it and. You know, I've been looking into it for a future podcast episode, but I am very stuck in my regular old planting schedule ways, um, but I definitely have to look into it. And so modern apothecary gardens are definitely making a comeback. They are enjoyed um, not only for personal wellness, but when we think of the holistic approach to health, they connect to our spiritual side also. And so I think that's also a really important thing to bring about, right? Just even increasing the plants in your space. It brings out just that almost like inner peace in a place of relaxation and you're bringing some nature in. So there is that more kind of spiritual side, that mindful side to apothecary gardening. Even getting your hands in dirt in a pot is beneficial for your health. Um, so there is that side too, which has benefits. If I could pick three starter plants, if I had a small space and, you know, wanted some good all around plants... I would personally go with yarrow, calendula, and chamomile. Um, I just find them hardy to cold climates. They can become perennialized, which makes them easy, or they self-sow, which makes them easy for beginner gardeners. I also think they just really look and smell beautiful. And so if you are wanting to just start with a small apothecary garden, those are my three that I would start with. Um, and then I, like I said, also go for some basic culinary herbs. 
And you'd have a, in a small space, you could make a pretty beautiful little garden. And those plants would have so many uses and bring so many benefits into your life. Um, so if you do want an apothecary garden, take your time, find what works for you. Um, there's actually even out there in the realms of the internet, there are even like um, beautiful like apothecary garden designs where, you know, I've even seen people like plant in like moons and with circles or like pe even pentagrams, like they plant in like all of these, uh, you know, in kind of these special patterns um, because of the significance of the symbolism. I myself have not done that either. We kind of just go with what works best for our space. Um, and honestly, even planting them, like I said, in pots on a balcony, beautiful, fine. That will be a great job. Um, but definitely let me know if you have an apothecary garden, what you're growing, what you like to grow in there. Um, and I hope that this provided kind of an interesting starting point um, to exploring apothecaries and apothecary gardening more. Um, like I said, you might have noticed, right, that the modern apothecary garden has almost come full circle. What started off as being this very ancient and traditional practice of being in the hands of typically women um, or healer women. And then you kind of saw this movement where it became very much owned by men and very much capitalized, right? It was part of the economic system, part of the capitalist system. And now, and, you know, women were shut out of it. And now it's almost coming full circle where people are reclaiming their garden spaces and they're reclaiming this knowledge and this empowerment to grow what's going to help them and be beneficial for their health. And I just think that's, that's kind of a beautiful thing too, in a way, you know, so grow some herbs this year, grow some herbs, grow some flowers, make an apothecary garden, do it. Um, so you can find me at Instagram at the underscore northern underscore grower. If you're interested in following me there, as always, thank you for listening. I really appreciate it. Um, and you can also, if you ever have any questions or anything, you can email at the northern grower podcast at gmail.com. All details will be in the show notes. And as always, I wish you a wonderful and beautiful, bountiful growing season. Or if you just enjoy listening because of the folklore aspects, that's cool too if you hate gardening. Um, but I really hope that you have a beautiful day wherever you are. Find some joy and take care. <laughs>